Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. No Texans this week, but the Rockets have a new head coach and the Astros have major moves to make this offseason. Plus, we've got some information that may surprise you about the Astros cheating scandal. So plenty to kick around. And joining me is my co-host and regular sidekick, a fellow H-Town sports junkie and longtime journalist Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, it wasn't Jeff Van Gundy who was the front runner or John Lucas, the surprise finalist. What did you think? Steven Silas, I'm guessing you're a fan of anybody named Steven with a PH, right? <laughs> yeah, it never hurts. Uh, it definitely never hurts, Robert. The, the name is, is a good name, Steven Silas. I, I will take it. Um, I have to tell you, I was relieved when I heard that it was Steven Silas because, and, and look, this is not a knock against either the other two candidates per se, but did you really want another Jeff Van Gundy style offense to come to the Rockets and more first round exits. And, you know, John Lucas, he, he's at least, he's been a head coach a couple of different times, but it was ages ago. And, and so was Van Gundy. He hasn't coached in ages either. He's been a network analyst and yeah, he's still close to the game. But honestly, I just felt like the Rockets needed a different approach. If for no other reason, a, a guy that just, I think had a different perspective. Do, do you want to continue to bring coaches back that, that use the same system time and time again with every coaching stint? Or do you want somebody that maybe just needs a shot? And, you know, he's been an assistant for quite a while. It's not like he's had one or two years of uh, uh, assistant experience and he's ready to be a head coach. I, I just think that you need a different perspective. And uh, he certainly has had some impressive offensive numbers with what he did in Dallas. So, yeah, I'm. I'm quite happy with the hire, not just because of the name, but just because of the direction I think he or hopefully will take the Rockets in. I, I got to be fair to JBG, though. I, I feel like maybe he was a little bit more learned on offense. And if you listen to him on the game cast, I, I feel like maybe he's progressed a little bit offensively. I mean, the, the Rockets offense was what it was, because honestly, the last time uh, he was here, there, there wasn't a whole lot of talent, <laughs> if you notice, besides you know, a Tracy McGrady, and, and he really got the he got the less tougher Yao Ming. If you're a coach and you're also an analyst for the last, whatever, it's been more than a decade, you got to figure, you might have learned something after watching all these different teams and all these different offices over the years. Well, I think there's something to that, absolutely. And and you always wonder, will they change? Do they come back and, and do some things differently? Those are the risks that you take. You know, if you hire a Jeff Van Gundy, that, that's what you're going to do. I, I certainly think being an analyst, it... It gives you a chance to sit back kind of on the sidelines, watch what else goes on when you're not directly involved. And, and sometimes I think because, you know, if you listen to a lot of former players who recently retire or former coaches who, you know, get fired or resign or retire and they go in the analyst booth. I mean, it's amazing the, the kind of knowledge they have and that they bring to the telecast. You kind of think, well, how much did you use of that when you were coaching or, or are you learning now that, hey, maybe I'm seeing some things that I didn't see on the sidelines when I was coaching because I was so close to it. So yeah, I would agree that there would be something to that, but I just felt like the Rockets just needed to go in a direction like this and maybe have someone that just, yeah, I mean, Steven Silas is not a proven head coach. There is going to be a learning curve, but I think what, what the difference Robert is what he probably should do. And I think he will do is have some veteran assistant coaches around you that know what they're doing, 
that can get him into that loop much faster. Yeah, and if you look at the guys that they're talking about right now, speaking of that coaching staff, um, there are some very important people that they're talking to, and there's conversations about Nate McMillan, Jeff Hordacek. It's interesting because both of them were thorns in the Rockets' side as players. Steven, I hated when the Rockets played against those two guys, and and, and I think they're going to be the type of guys that make you feel like, well, the Rockets just aren't going to go, hey, uh, yeah, let's, let's get uh, – over to the spa so J- James Harden can uh, relax himself every day. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, those two names you just talked about uh, certainly were thorns in the rocket side. But, you know, what they say about players that play against you and uh, then they come onto your team, oh, you're very happy to have them. So they can have that kind of perspective. But those are two names that I think, you know, as you said, have been kicked around. And even John Lucas, I, I think, has been mentioned as maybe joining the staff as an assistant. And I wouldn't have a big problem with that because he does have a relationship with the players. So it, it may not be all that bad in, in that situation. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see once the names come out who actually will be on his staff. But I do think he will surround himself with some veterans. And the bloodlines, you know, with his dad don't hurt either, I'm sure. And John Lucas I could care less about because if he had good ideas and he wasn't telling the Rockets in the last few years that he, that, you know, they need ideas. They need some new ways of thinking about things. And McMillan, you know, you look at Nate McMillan, he's known as as a head coach anyway for being this tough, no-nonsense guy. His team's played hard defensively. They're usually at the top of the NBA in fewest turnovers, which, uh, hello, James and, and Russ, I, I yeah. know you could learn a little bit from that. And I can't imagine either McMillan or Hornacek, you know, making this lock, Rockets locker room into something where, you know, hey, James and Russ can do whatever they want to. You know, it's carte blanche. Well, you certainly hope not, because it just seemed like there there was maybe too much of, you know, the the players just being able to play the style that they kind of wanted to, and, and just more undisciplined. They, there there does need to be more discipline on the court, and and certainly uh, you know more attention to detail with the defense. You know, we've talked about that quite a bit, so it'll be interesting to see what Stephen Silas can do on that end as well. Look at his resume too, Stephen Silas's resume. You got to respect it. Check this out. His first four years as an assistant coach, he worked under Hall of Famer Don Nelson in the Golden State. He had his longest stint in Charlotte, uh, and that's where he started off as an assistant coach under NBA and NCAA champion coach Larry Brown for one year. Then he worked under his dad, Paul, for a year. Then there was some guy, I don't know, Mike Dunlap, if you know him. And then there's a good stint with Steve Clifford, who Rockets fans will remember because of his days working for Jeff Van Gundy and alongside Tom Thibodeau. So, you know, by osmosis, Silas has a little bit of Van Gundy and a little bit of Thibodeau. Those guys could coach a little defense, if you remember. And then the last couple of years, as everybody knows, he was under NBA champ coach Rick Carlisle in Dallas. And if you can't pick up something from Don Nelson, Larry Brown, and Rick Carlisle, you're in trouble. Well, you know, and it's good that he has so many different coaches that he has worked under. I think that's a good thing. You know, that now obviously that's not going to necessarily translate into success. You know, how many people do we say, well, they worked for Bill Belichick or they worked for, you know, so-and-so in this sport. And so they should be a great head coach. It doesn't always translate. But I think the fact that he has worked under all those guys you mentioned may actually help him because you you develop a different a sense of different styles, you know, different coaching philosophies, and maybe you can formulate your own you know, a bit better from drawing on from some of those guys. Yeah, I think there's this thought that he's a, a 
offensive guy instead of a defensive guy because of what the Mavericks have done the last couple of years offensively. Um, uh, helps a lot to have you know somebody like Luca there, and Luca very similar to James Harden. Um, do you remember much about the Mavericks games? Did it feel like Luca was playing more off the ball than James Harden? I did. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and Luca is still developing. I mean, if you think how great he is now, but he's still going forward. So no, I was impressed with I, as much. I, I must admit, I didn't see the Mavericks play a lot this past season. Well, they didn't, you know, well, before the pandemic or after. Um, but I, I did think that that's the kind of style that you hope that James will pick up on at some point. Because to me, I mean, I feel like a broken record. But if you're just listening to me for the first time or you haven't listened to me in a while, I, I do not like the fact that it's James going one on five. I just don't like that offense. They need to get James off the ball some. It works during the regular season a lot of times against bad teams. But when you're going up against good teams in the regular season, when you're going up against playoff teams, you can focus on that. They need to figure out a way to get more movement into the offense, to get the ball into James' hand. Maybe when he's coming off a screen, get a you know a, a pick set and and get him a wide open three every now and then. And and that's one thing. If you go back and look, and I've seen on Twitter people post some old videos of the Rockets and James in the in their early years, you would see James occasionally come off a screen. And hit a three, and and when he's when he's open, or when he's not the guy that has to shoot the step back uh, three or whatever, he's better at that. He's he's a really good three point shooter. Absolutely, he is. You know, if you put him in the right spots, he will make them. And then I think that's really the key is just a more disciplined style of outside shooting, and that's what you hope Stephen Silas can bring to this team because that's that's certainly what they need is just more selective shooting from that range, and then you know even more drives to the hoop. I mean, I felt like at at some periods during the postseason this year when they did it it was effective but then they just started wandering away from it and going back to just shooting up threes and when they were falling it was great but when they're not you know as we saw a couple years ago the over 27 you just you're not going to win games that way period i got a couple other thoughts on the rockets and and big picture stuff but let me get back to silas because i want to mention a couple other things a little background on him from a bio standpoint born in boston Raised in New York City. Maybe those are two strikes against him for the Rockets fans. I don't know. But here's maybe the scariest part about his bio, Steve. And we might as well talk scary. Coming off of Halloween, he graduated from Brown University. Do you really want another coach in Houston that graduated from Brown University? That, the last guy didn't work out too well. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that, Robert. But hey, I mean, if, you, if, we're, if we're looking for reasons to not hire him, I guess you could put that. You could put that on the list. Steven Silas's dad, Paul, was a pretty decent player, but most everybody knows him more as a coach over the last 40 years, including a couple of years as LeBron's first head coach in Cleveland. So, you know, Steven was around that. So he's dealt with somebody of a LeBron size ego and a LeBron size talent. So, you know, he's been around some guys, Luca, LeBron, et cetera. Other news this week, Daryl Morey not taking a hiatus. He took the job with the Sixers. And that tells me, Steven, that he didn't want to work for Tillman Fertitta anymore. I mean, Rockets fans were not happy with Tillman Fertitta maybe chasing Daryl Morey away. They're not they're not trusting of Fertitta in general. Robert, you remember when the news came out that Morey was leaving? In fact, we were we were doing an Astros podcast when it happened, and I think I, I remember both of us kind of alluding to the fact that just the timing of it, because they were right in the middle of a search for a head coach, and it made me wonder. Is there something else going on behind the scenes between Daryl and Tillman? 
And I believe it was a year and a half ago or so, you know, the, 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 I think Daryl kind of told Tillman even then, he kind of gave him a warning in a sense, maybe not directly, that he wasn't going to be around forever, that, you know, there may be some things down the road that he might want to do. So it just kind of makes you wonder. And then I, I thought he was going to take a hiatus and he kept mentioning spending time with his family. You know, his kids were taking off years from college and things of that nature. And then all of a sudden the other day pops up, oh, he's going to oversee the uh, Philadelphia 76ers operation. How about that? So it does make you wonder if there's just more behind the scenes that we haven't heard about yet. Do you really think Daryl liked working with Tillman? Well, anytime you have an owner that it is obvious, I know he says he is not a hands-on owner, but let's be honest, Tillman Fertitta is not a guy in the background that's going to keep his mouth shut. We know that from his, you know, with his uh, tenure with the University of Houston and the influence he has on the Cougars program. So, uh, you know, if if he feels that Tillman is too much in the way and not maybe just, or maybe their personalities just aren't, you know, sometimes it's all about personality as much as philosophy. So there could be that as well. We also got to talk about where the Rockets go from here because you finally got a head coach in place. You finally got your GM in place with Daryl gone, although, you know, that seemed to happen immediately. But still, you've got to get the players. And you also, you know, with the draft is coming quickly, the free agency, all that stuff is coming real quickly because Adam Silver was talking about a late December potentially Christmas starting date. Now there's a sort of fight between the Players Association and Adam Silver. It could be in mid-January, Stephen. So things are going to happen really, really fast. And the big thing, if you're the Rockets, is you have got to find a big guy to where at least you can be versatile. And I think that's one of the things that they're going to look for. You know, New Orleans Noel was somebody that they really wanted to go after. They really were interested in from Oklahoma City um, around the trade deadline last year. And they thought that he might be either available, they could deal for him or or somehow get a hold of him or somebody else that was going to hit the free agent market. That didn't happen. That's what they thought was going to be the other domino when they traded Clint Capella. But, you know, that should be priority one. They've got to get a big guy so they can deal with teams like the Lakers and the size that that, that a team like that provides you in the playoffs. Well, I don't know about you, Robert, but I'm hoping that this small ball thing kind of goes away sooner rather than later. I I just, I mean, I had... I had my, you know, misgivings about it at the very moment it started. And, you know, obviously it didn't get them to a championship. So I, I tend to agree with you, whether it's Nerlens Noel or someone else that may be available. But whatever's going to have to happen, you know, you're right, it's going to have to happen soon. And I guess Raphael Stone and Steven Silas are going to be kind of in the same position, you know, that Major League Baseball was in with, you know, trying to just, you didn't know what things were going to happen during covid you know, James Click kind of faced the same thing with the Astros when he came on board. Everything was so up in the air. So, yeah, you know, they're going to have to be prepared to move if the league decides we're going to play in December. You know, I think the players I, I hear are wanting them to start maybe on MLK Day. There's just so much unknown, but whatever the case, it's it's probably going to happen sooner rather than later, and they need to be ready to move on whatever happens. Yeah, there's also this talk that if you move it back to mid-January, there's billions they i mean there's a ton of money that they could lose in that three weeks which i i don't understand i i also don't understand why there's this big fight to keep it uh from going against the summer olympics when who knows if we're going to have the summer olympics i mean there's still so many travel restrictions around the world i mean even when you're having these uh major tournaments in tennis or golf there's a lot of guys that just can't be there because of that 
So, I mean, frankly, you're the NBA. You should say, who cares about the Olympics? And your goal should be to not fight against the NFL in ratings. You need to get away from the NFL season any and every way possible. And I don't think you're going to have any problem getting ratings in July and August because people are on vacation. Where are they going, Stephen, anytime soon? I don't think <laughs> travel is picking up any time soon anywhere. I don't think so either, especially when you consider the fact, uh, you know, especially if you want to go overseas, well, there's a second wave of COVID in Europe and cases even within the United States are going up. So, yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people are going to be prone to wanting to travel anytime soon. And I'm with you about staying away from the NFL season. I think we both have seen that the ratings, well, you know, for the NBA, for Major League Baseball and, and everything have definitely taken a hit because of the NFL so I, I tend to think that, you know, if you start in December, think about this, Robert. You've got the teams that didn't even go to the bubble when they reopened the season and finished out the regular season. You know, those teams that sat at home, they haven't even been in action for months. They haven't practiced together, you know, at a training camp, anything. And then you have the teams that were in the postseason and, then of course, the L.A. Lakers and those who went to the very end. They would be coming off very short rest. So it makes no sense to me why they would even want to start in December when you have those two elements basically clashing against each other. Last I knew, LeBron James was your moneymaker, and he's a ratings grabber. I mean, I know that the ratings were not good this time, but you are you were fighting in the finals against Major League Baseball playoffs. You're fighting against the NFL. You've got the election going on. You have to just factor all that stuff in, and they've done surveys on this stuff, and there's a, there's a lot of different things. It's just not It's not about one thing why the ratings are down. His ratings are down in, frankly, all the sports. And it's just, I think it's just where we are. It's just a weird time. And maybe things w would get back to a little bit to normal. And you would, if you set it up where people knew when everything was, it, it felt like you're, you're having to teach this, teach people, teach viewers this new normal. That's going to be a big part of it. But if we're talking about a short off season, the Rockets got some major work to do. They're going to have to find somebody maybe to, to give that full mid-level for, and hopefully you don't have to give the full mid-level for the big guy that you need. Maybe you can get a New Orleans, New Orleans Noel on the cheap or some small deal that you can make or something like that. But if I'm the Rockets, you know, going back to what they've got to do this offseason, it's about versatility. It reminds me uh, of the Astros. Remember the Astros a few years ago before this version of the Astros, it was home run or bust. And that's, that's the way the three-point shot is and the small ball reminds me of. In, in every sport, I think the key that you want to do offensively is you want to have versatility, and that's what the Rockets need to concentrate on. It's not something specific that you want to be necessarily great at doing this thing over and over and over again. You need a you need a bread and butter, but you also need that to be able to do multiple different things against the defense in the NBA. Well, that's right, and you also need it more on across the board. You don't want you know to have just one or two players who can throw up those kind of shots because on an off night. You need somebody else to pick up the slack. And that's where I think a, a lot of teams that have been winning championships lately in, in almost any sport, that's where it is, is you've got to have that versatility. And if you don't have the consistency from your main one or two guys, you're going to have somebody else that can step up and pick up the slack, especially if you're going to go that route like the Rockets have with putting up so many three-point shots. Yeah, with the offseason here, I'm going to see if I can get on a couple people and maybe I can get some Rockets guests. I do want to get to the Astros, though, because tons of news as we look at some stuff that's happened over the last week, but also we need to look forward on this stuff. And let me start off 
Stephen, by asking you, since the Astros didn't offer Roberto Asuna arbitration and he's not coming back, what did you think about that? You know, I wasn't as surprised as I probably thought I might be, Robert, just because when you consider the fact that he's coming off an elbow injury that you don't even know how that's going to play out. And, and I don't know if this had anything to do with it. I'm only guessing here. But it, it, it could be, you know, that maybe James Click is trying to purge the Astros of some of the bad PR that they've had. And I know, you know, your feelings about a Roberto Asuna, you know, in the past. And I, I just think, I mean, when you look at his numbers, they're not terrible, certainly. But coming off an injury like this and then, you know, with so many other questions facing the team, it really didn't surprise me that much. And when you think about there are some closers out there that are on the market. You know, you, you've got uh, players like uh, like Trinan, Alex Colomay, Liam Hendricks, you know, is, is going to be out there. So there are some there are some options the Astros could go for if they so choose. Yeah, he just seems like that black cloud that was hanging over the Astros ever since they got him and they couldn't get rid of. And it just went downhill, it seems like, as soon as they got Roberto Osuna. But I also think, and I, let, me, let me ask you this, Stephen, do you think that um, I'm kind of guessing they didn't think he was going to make it back this year or back to 100 uh, percent anytime soon. So if you're the Astros, you might be looking to save money where you can. You offer him arbitration. That's a lot of arbitration money to a, a guy that maybe not even be or might not even be available this year. And we're in an economic situation where. Hey, can you afford that? We need to cut costs where we can. And we're seeing this with other teams in the in the uh, Major League Baseball because uh, Chris Davinsky, Dustin Garneau, they've also hit free agency. Um, the Astros aren't offering anything to them. Maybe that's not a big surprise, but Charlie Morton has hit free agency. Yeah, Robert, you just nailed it. It, it really, I, I think, especially in the case of Roberto Osuna, you know, and, and even Chris Davinsky and a couple of these other guys, that it, it came down to are they worth the kind of money that they're probably going to get through arbitration? And certainly in Osuna's case, when you have such an unknown there, you know, I, I don't know that I think that's kind of the big if is, you know, is he going to be able to come back within the next three to four months? And, you know, the closer is a, a key position. It, it just, you, you can't afford to sit around and wait to see if your closer's coming back. You've got to nail that down well before the season. And especially with all those names I just mentioned, I don't know if the Astros are going to go after any of those guys, but I think it it also puts into question, and then this can kind of carry over into some of the other free agent questions the Astros have with George Springer and some of the others. But, you know, how much money are these teams going to offer these players because of the fact that the market is down with COVID? You know, the Astros had a number of layoffs in every department in their office, you know, from from business all the way down everywhere else. So those are the questions that they're facing so that's why it really didn't surprise me that players like Osuna and Davinsky and Garneau uh, did not come back with a club and w- or will not come back. Yeah, people did not hear. Again, Charlie Morton, basically the Rays said, we're going to let you walk and not we're not going to give you that uh, option of $15 million next year. The Indians, they did the same thing with Brad Hand. They let him walk over $10 million right. in that option. So how does this relate to the Astros and Springer, Stephen? Let me kind of lay it out for everybody. The good news is the market may suck this year. Seems like a lot of teams need to cut costs with the economic mess. Maybe that helps you get Springer back. But the bad news is with Springer and Brantley, 
They've both put their house up for sale. Also throw into the mix that ESPN Radio's Patrick Creighton says Springer is working on a deal to the Mets. I don't know how he knows that or, you know, I, I haven't heard that anywhere else. But he said that is a fact. There's a new owner with the Mets and a bunch of money in that guy's piggy bank. But they have three outfielders who are 27 or 28 years old, all of them, who've all had an OPS of 836 or higher. Those guys seem to be trending up and they're still in arbitration mode those three outfielders. So is Springer a big enough upgrade for them to spend their money on him? Steven, what are the odds at this point you think Springer is back? The only optimism I have, Robert, is is just what, what we just alluded to, that maybe teams aren't going to be quite as aggressive and that the Astros have a shot. I, I just, But as each day goes by, I, I just feel like the, the signs are pointing to the fact that maybe he, the Astros just aren't going to be willing to spend the kind of money that maybe he wants. And if that's the case, you know, then you've got Michael Brantley, who's 33 years old, although, you know, he's hit three over 300 the last three years. He's the most consistent hitter, certainly one of the most consistent hitters I've seen in years. You just I, I feel like you've got to at least bring one of these two guys back. I, I don't think it's realistic to say they're both coming back. I, I just don't see that. But one of those two, I just feel like you've got to because the Astros, you know, that I think we're pretty sure that Josh Reddick is not going to come back. So that would be three. You're basically your entire outfield is almost gone. And then you look at the guys that are out there: Jackie Bradley Jr., Marcelo Suna, Jock Peterson. I mean, do, do they make you want to jump up and go, "Ooh, we got to grab one of these guys," as opposed to re-signing a George Springer or Michael Brantley? Yeah, my one problem with Brantley: if you're not bringing Springer Brant back and you're just bringing Brantley back, you've got Brantley, who's somebody. You've got a DH some because of his knees and his age, and he's had a history of injury. You've got Jordan, who's coming off two knee surgeries. I know he's on the treadmill. We got video of that on Instagram or whatever, on social media. Uh, but you've got two guys that need to bounce back and forth between DH and left field, and you've got somebody like uh, Kyle Tucker that's not exactly a great defensive outfielder, although he's gotten a lot better. Um, do I want to have him in right field every single day? Maybe, maybe not, but you've got a lot of guys that can play left field, but nobody that's really good in right field or center field. I just don't know about bringing Brantley Brack if you're not going to bring back Springer. And that's right. And, and then the other thing, too, with Springer gone is, yeah, you don't have a true center fielder. I mean, are you going to have Miles Straw be your center fielder? I certainly hope not. <laughs> to Certainly to starting in center field. You know, we don't even like it when they put him out there in the late innings to play center, Robert. So, yeah, those are the big questions. And I, I think that you know, the, the Astros certainly need to do everything they can to try to sign, sign George Springer. And I'm sure they will to the point they're going to make him the qualifying offer. You know they're going to do that because if he does walk, they'll, they'll get a draft choice out of it. But beyond that, it's just hard to say because, you know, James Click, although he wasn't he didn't make the final decisions in Tampa Bay, he certainly was part of that. You know, and the Rays didn't have a history of signing these big free agent contracts. They did tend though to go with extensions with guys they already had. So maybe that is something that is a positive for the Astros that, you know, maybe that's how they'll approach it. Let's just play this out and let's say it's worst case scenario. Springer and Brantley both leave the lineup though. I think it might still be one of the top 10 lineups in Astros. I'm not even going to say top 10 lineups in Astros history. I think this could still be one of the top five lineups in Astros history. Altuve has got an MVP and he's still Altuve. Bregman has two top five MVP finishes. Jordan is a potential MVP. 
Correa is one of the best shortstops in baseball. Tucker has all-star skills. Those, those are five guys that most teams would give anything for, anything for five all-star caliber guys in their lineup. That doesn't include a potential free agent outfielder, which I, I think they would have to go grab somebody. It wouldn't be a mild straw necessarily. We're going to, hey, we're going to go with him every day. And then you've got Yuli, who hopefully can get his crap together. And still, worst case scenario, he's bad, but he's batting seventh for you. And you still got whatever, Martin Maldonado, uh, which I, I would hope is coming back and is going to be in the in the ninth spot and is still going to give you some clutch hitting and and great play behind the behind the plate. This is still a really good offensive team. It is in theory, but there you know questions do abound. I mean, uh, Jose Altuve had a miserable year for most of the season. Yeah, I know it was a shortened season and everything's different, but you know these guys are still major players. And Alex Bregman had a disappointing season at the plate, and then of course you mentioned Yuli just. The kind of slump he had is just so uncharacteristic of him. So you have to hope that these guys bounce back in a in a normal circumstance. If if we even have a normal season next year, we don't even know that. But if that's the case, then yes, absolutely. The Astros still have a good lineup. But is it is it the kind that would scare you the way it would, you know, if you had a Springer in there and when they were winning the World Series and coming close like they did in 2019 so well hey let's be honest though the Astros lineup in 2017 in the last two or three years we're not talking about one of the best lineups in Astros history we're talking about one of the best lineups in baseball history and the idea that you can keep all of those guys together I don't care who you are it's it's a it's a big ask and and just going back to what you said I want to mention what you said on on Alex Bregman because I think it's a little bit overplayed that he had this terrible year because it was the postseason, especially that last series, that he really looked bad. If you look at his regular season numbers, he had an 801 OPS. Yes, that's not the Alex Bregman that was fighting for MVPs a couple of years, but he always gets off to a slow start. And in a two-month season, you were expecting a, a slow start, meaning his numbers over the course of two months were going to be down. So I, I'm not panicking over Alex Bregman. Altuve, we know why he struggled. It, it was it was him trying to prove something with the cheating scandal. And once he got into the playoffs, we saw the Altuve that we're used to seeing. The one that we want to get rid of and throw in the trash is the guy on defense. But that was the Altuve. I'm not worried about those two guys. I think they're going to be okay. I'm worried about Yuli. I'm not worried about those two guys. But that's kind of what I was alluding to is that these weren't normal circumstances. And I was, I was basically wrapping up all of Bregman's numbers, you know, regular season and postseason, kind of into one. I was going through the whole year. But did you really think, though, Robert, year after year after year, not all of these guys are going to have outstanding numbers. It's just, you know, the regression to the mean is going to happen at least to some extent, especially when you talk about Altuve. Uh, he's still he's, – he's not over the hill by any means, but he's certainly older. I do keep waiting for Bregman to get better and maybe more consistent throughout the year, maybe not get off to such a horrible start in the first couple months of the season – but it just may be the type of player he is. But I'm not, I'm not saying that the Astros are going to have a terrible lineup at all. But, boy, if you take George Springer out of there and, and don't have somebody that even comes close to filling that, it's a major hole, certainly. And then you, you talk about Correa, where he's got one more year left, and then the questions are going to start coming. You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to try to re-sign him? Are you going to try to trade him so that you can at least get something for him if he's not going to come back? And, and you hope that he can keep the offensive numbers because he certainly came through 
this past season with the offensive numbers as well as the defense. Right, and and Correa, if this is his last year, which it very well could be and, and probably will be, you know, this is your, your this might be your last run with this group in, in a big way where you've got so many great guys on your team. But still, I mean, that's that's baseball. You're going to have runs. It's going to guys are going to come and go. That's what's going to happen. Springer, the concern for me isn't the regular season, although I, I am concerned about what he brings to a clubhouse and his personality in the locker room and his ability to keep guys loose, although it didn't seem to help him this year. Maybe the cheating had something to do with it. And there was a lot of guilt running around that clubhouse, which I'm guessing there was. Um, but the, but I'm, what I'm really concerned about by losing Springer is that guy in the postseason, that igniter in the postseason, the best clutch hitter in Astros history in the postseason. In my mind, you know, we've seen Altuve come up big in the postseason. Obviously, we've seen Correa do it. But consistently, George Springer was the best in the post. That's what I'm really worried about with missing him. But the, re- the Astros regular season, as they're set up with this lineup, is still, I, I, you could say it's one of the top two or three lineups in baseball, even if both of those guys leave. Think about that. Yep, that is certainly potentially true. And and you, like I said, you you hope that if a season can get back to normal and you play a full year and these guys, you know, have the time to go into some slumps and come out of them and, and then get hot at just the right time. And then when you get to the postseason, that's when it all counts, you know, because that's really what it boils down to is can you perform well in the postseason? And also, Stephen, not many teams can run out five starting pitchers the caliber of Fromber, Urquidy, Javier, McCullers, and Granke. I mean, Granke's your fifth guy. That's good. Yeah, I'll tell you what. That, that is something that you really hope that those guys can continue to get better the next year, you know, especially when you talk about Fromber Valdez. You, the, the last thing you wanted to hear is that, oh, it was just a Cinderella season and he's going to start going down again because he really showed that he can be a great pitcher in this league. It just, he just needs to develop the consistency over the years to do that. And in all indications, there are that he will. I think he, I think he figured out a lot over last winter. And I, I think, you know, Brent Strom even alluded to it back in January that even then he saw a difference in Framber Valdez. So when you throw those other names in there, yeah, I, I'm not as upset about the fact that Justin Verlander is not going to be around. I'm not as concerned about it as I was when we had the second spring training and the season started and then Verlander was gone, we, we pretty much figured for the whole year. Yeah. You also hope to have somebody like a healthy Austin Pruitt, who could be a swing guy. So if one of those five guys gets injured, you got somebody else, you know, maybe Forrest Whitley, you know, I hate to say his name because we've just been saying his name for years and I feel like it's kind of a lost cause, but you know, that's somebody else that maybe can get his act together. Uh, next year and if somebody goes down you get an injury he can come in and help you but without Springer and Brantley if those guys do walk if you're the Astros maybe it's a blessing in disguise because maybe where you need to spend this money is in the bullpen Um, get that closer add some arms to what you've got but you got a hell of a start Paredes Presley who hopefully bounces back a little bit next year Brandon Taylor the return of Joe Smith you hope uh, Brooks Raley, who's if he's your fifth guy, that's fine. And Andre Scrub, who showed great promise as a rookie. You're not talking about guys like Cy Sneed and Josh James that you've got to depend on, Steven. So this bullpen, if you add one more guy, wow, then you've really got something. And like I said, Austin Pruitt is basically a middle reliever and somebody 
that when you add all these guys up, he's somebody that's there for you if you need a starter in a pinch. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could see if Austin Pruitt could come back, he could be your Brad Peacock because, you know, Peacock is probably not going to come back either. And you look at some of the names that I mentioned earlier, you know, we talk about closers, you know, Trinan, Alex Colomay, Liam Hendricks. You know, there are other relievers out there, too. Alex Colomay is out there, Kirby Yates, Shane Green. Maybe they could pick up one of those guys or just somebody that maybe the name is not on our tongue. You know, even a, a journeyman type that they've taken chances on in the past, like Charlie Morton as a starter. I kind of wonder, you know, if it goes on too long and nobody's knocking on Charlie's door offering big money, what do you think, Robert? Bring him back. Bring him back. You know what? I think you would make a lot of Astros fans happy. Osuda is gone and Charlie Morton is back. That would really bring a smile to Astros. What could be Astros better? <laughs> Come on. What could be better? You'd have, you, you could still use another starter, honestly, because I don't know that the picture is going to remain exactly the same as what we talked about. So come on. Yeah. Bring Charlie Morton back. He got rid of Roberto Osuna. Ah, what, but we, we got to do something to get more positive besides talking about the cheating scandal and everything else. You know, one thing that we always forget about is the guy that's, you know, the brains in this operation on the pitching side is Brent Strom is James click and his guys. Are they, as smart as Jeff Luno in identifying a Ryan Presley or a Charlie Morton that he could get his hands on and make good into great or average into really, really good like he's done with those two guys? Well, that is something that, unfortunately, is just going to have to play out over time. You know, James doesn't have the record for that. I mean, you could say some of the guys they got in Tampa Bay, but again, you know, he wasn't making the, he wasn't overseeing all of it. He was making some of the decisions and was certainly a big influence on a lot of those players that beat the Astros in the ALCS. But over time, that's what you're going to find out is who you have to work with and can they come up with those guys. And, of course, you know, the big challenge is that the Astros farm system isn't anywhere near what it used to be, and they're not going to have as many draft picks, you know, to try to rebuild it. So they've got to rely on those guys, those types of guys anyway, you know, the, the Charlie Mortons and some of the others we've talked about, that maybe can come in and surprise some people or maybe even some international players that, that they've gotten, you know, the Framber Valdez, the Yuli Gurriels and those guys, that's really what they're going to need to lean on, especially if they're not going to throw a lot of big money to numerous free agents over the next few years. Some of these other aspects have to come through if they're going to remain a winning team consistently. And I don't know if you heard this, but Brent Strom, it scared me half to death when I heard it. He, he said he came very, very close to not coming back next year. Yeah, that is scary. I mean, you know, he is, of course, uh, not the youngest guy in the park, and you know it's going to happen at some point, but it's going to be a sad day in Houston Astros history when Brent Strom does walk away. Because, you know, you talk about the intangibles, Robert, and I guess some people think, oh, he's you know, he's a pitching coach. There's a lot of those guys out there. Yeah, but if you knew, you know, on the inside – how much influence Brent Strom has on those pitchers and just his his knowledge of how to just how to get the best out of them it is not an understatement to to say how valuable he is to the team and that if he leaves it it's almost like losing a star pitcher or a, a star relief pitcher don't you think oh worse i think it's worse <laughs> yeah yeah I, i'd say you're right you know uh other couple other news that sort of affect the Astros uh number 1 Dusty Baker no longer the oldest manager in baseball 
76-year-old Tony La Russa was hired by the White Sox a little over 41 years after they hired him as a manager the first time. He was just 34 years old at the time. And Steven, the first time he was the White Sox, White Sox skipper, he managed Minnie Minoso. Minnie was born wow. in 1925 as a rookie. Steven, Minoso played with Satchel Paige and Bob Feller. <laughs> How many generations have gone by? You said 41 years. So that's at least two generations we're talking about removed from when Tony Larusa managed the White Sox the first time. Yeah, I mean, you know what? That's I think I saw a headline talking about the hiring of Larusa, and I think the headline was in like Jerry Reinsdorf is still the boss of the White Sox. So you know that's that's definitely a Reinsdorf hire right there. None of the Astros were born the last time Tony Larusa managed the White Sox. Heavens, no, certainly not. Yeah, not the current players. No, absolutely not. The other news, and this is another manager hiring, and one that will definitely interest Astros fans, the Tigers, the Detroit Tigers, hired A.J. Hinch as their new manager. Well, I will tell you, Robert, I, I really was not that surprised at all to see that A.J. got a job so quickly. And there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, you know, first of all, I think if, if you stacked up A.J. Hinch and Jeff Luno, and I think we've even talked about this before on the podcast of who would get back into baseball faster, I, I think the consensus would certainly be that it would have been A.J. Just because of the way he's at least shown way more remorse about the cheating scandal than Jeff Luno has. And how he is at least, you know, if, if the worst thing that A.J. Hinch did is just not take decisive enough action, yes, it is serious. Yes, he absolutely deserved to be suspended, and he served his suspension. And from what I understand, when he was interviewing with the Tigers, he did at least convince them that, that he must have been remorseful enough and talked to them at great length about it that they decided to take a chance on him. So, you know what? I'm happy for AJ. He, he's able to get back in the game and get another chance. And, of course, he did play for the Tigers at one point, too. Did you see he showed a lot of remorse and I, I really liked what his statement was uh, once he was hired regarding this scandal. Well, I do know one thing he referred to, Robert. I, I'm not sure of the exact statement you're talking about, but I know one thing he referred to is that he understands that, you know, this is going to follow him. And, and even with him being on the Tigers, you know, he's going to be asked about it. And I think he's alluded to that as well. And that's something that, you know, he, he's certainly not happy about, but he understands it and accepts it. And, and as I said, I just think the overall attitude of AJ is, you know what, it happened. I wish it hadn't. I wish I'd done more. But now, you know, I, I want to move forward with this. Right. And, you know, it's with AJ, it's going to be interesting because in mid-April, guess who's coming to town? Guess who's coming to Minute Maid? And we assume there's going to be maybe at least a few fans that are going to be able to go out there. Jeez, I hope there's going to be a few fans that could be able to go out there by April to Minute Maid and, and uh, watch some games. So we'll see see what the reaction is when A.J. Hinch gets there and what the reaction is for other teams around baseball, you know, how the other fan bases are going to react, you know, when he goes to, for example, play the Yankees. <laughs> what are they, how are they going to react to <laughs> well, A.J. Hinch? You know, yeah, they'll react, but look, yeah, I mean, at least A.J.'s not a player. He's not going to be on the field multiple times during the game. I'm sure they'll boo him every time he comes out to make a pitching change or when they introduce him at the start of the game or whatever. But it's not like he's a player that's having to go up to bat three or four times a game or, you know, something like that where they're going to have every opportunity to boo him, you know, where as a manager, yeah, there's, there's going to be some of that. And, and look, 
everybody on the Astros that's been involved in this is going to have this for years to come. I mean, it's just the way it is. But yeah, it certainly will be interesting when the Astros do play the Tigers. I I believe, Robert, I, I really do, as far as Astro fans go, I think they will give AJ a very warm reception, provided that they're even allowed to come to the ballpark. That might be the only place he gets a warm reception, right? <laughs> well, maybe in Detroit. I'm sure they'll welcome him in Detroit now that he's on their side, and especially if he starts winning games. They'll 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 be fine with him there, I'm sure. Yeah, and he said, um, you know, in his statement, he said the last year was difficult. It gave him time to reflect and everywhere, everything that had transpired and personally and professionally put it all in perspective. Um, re, he and it said he said it uh, reinforced how important it is to do things with integrity and honesty, which is more than you got from Jeff Luno and his little conversation that he had with KPRC within the last week, week and a half. Um, don't want to say too much about that because I, I know with you and me, Stephen, I think we're just going to agree to say that, you know, Jeff, I mean, who believes the guy at this point and baseball basically came out and said, you know, he's lying about what he's saying, et cetera. The fact that he didn't know anything about it, but um, Ben Ryder uh, did a, a Astros podcast. He's got one going on right now. It's called the edge. And it really right. caught my attention because, you know, first of all, I think everybody remembers, uh, ben Ryder, Sports Illustrated. He was the one who predicted the Astros 2017 championship with the famous SI cover story back in 2014. He predicted the championship, which was a major deal. And I, I definitely want to recommend this podcast. And I want to hit on a couple of fascinating revelations so far. Have you listened to it yet, Stephen? I haven't had a chance to catch it. I know about it. Uh, but yeah, I definitely want to check it out. I certainly read the book and uh, the article that came out several years ago. So that is on my list of podcasts to check out. All right, first thing, Jeff Luno talked about the Chris Correa scandal. Uh, they had Jeff Luno on the podcast, uh, Ben did, and uh, about the C Chris Correa scandal, um, and everybody remembers Chris Correa, Cardinals front office member, illegally broke into the Astros computer system and was convicted and sent to prison for that. So in Ben Ryder's podcast, Luno said that he told Chris Correa while they both worked for the Cardinals that if Luno got a GM job, he'd want to potentially hire Correa. Luno said that after he hired Mike Elias and Sig Meidel away from the Cardinals, those were his first couple of, or two of his first couple of hires. It might've been his first two hires with the Astros. The Cardinals organization said, no, no, no. We refuse to let anybody else talk to you, at least for the next couple of years. That's the only guys you can take from our organization, period. Well, all right, so... Essentially, is it, it? It sounds to me as if Chris Correa was blaming Jeff Luno for that, and to get back at him, he's going to do what he did to the Astros. I mean, that that makes no, no sense no, at all. Jeff, I mean, first no, of all, I, well, if that's the way you're that, if that's the way you're hearing it, then you're hearing it different than I think the way Ben Ryder was pointing it out, and Jeff Luno was pointing out, basically saying that Jeff was surprised that Chris Correa did this because you know he thought he had a great relationship with him. He had a great deal of respect for him, and he was somebody that he wanted to hire with the Astros. Right. Well, that's what I'm. That's what I was about to say. Is that I, I would be shocked. I mean, if I were Jeff Luna, I'd be going, "Well, why are you blaming me? I, I was. You were probably going to be next on my list. But if they said no, I can't take you. Then why are you getting back at me? That that was kind of the, the angle I was looking for there. Yeah, and I think I don't know if it's getting back. I just think, you know, maybe he knew what Jeff Luna was all about, and as we find out, that's potentially what he was all well that's what 
everybody thinks he's all about. The second thing on the podcast that I thought was extremely interesting regards Brandon Taubman. And we all remember the Astros assistant GM who yelled at the Astros reporter in the clubhouse among actually among a number of reporters, but I think it was all pointed and focused on one particular Astros reporter because she criticized the Roberto Osuna deal. Two fascinating parts to the Taubman Osuna story. Number one, Taubman was very much against Luno making the Osuna deal and told him so. So that was kind of shocking to hear. He didn't want to trade for Roberto Osuna. The second thing they said in the podcast was that Taubman ran into that reporter that he yelled at and they had a three-hour get-together. This was just a few months ago or within the last few months where he told her that she had good reason to be critical of the Osuna trade. And Taubman also said that he yelled at her not because he wanted to taunt her, but because he had a pathological desire to defend what he'd helped the Astros build. He also told her that he's now volunteering 20 hours a month helping a domestic violence organization improve their analytical capabilities, ironically. And he's also started to see a therapist to understand what inside him had allowed competition to make him a bully. So that was all pretty good stuff, Stephen. I thought that was wow. fascinating. Yeah, that certainly was fascinating. And again, you know, to how much credibility there is to that, it, I guess only Jeff Luno and Brandon Taupman know the answer to those questions. But definitely, yeah, I, I like I said, I've been meaning to check out the podcast. And after what you just told me, uh, I know there are at least several episodes out there right now, right? Yeah, and, and that's Jeff. They're quoting Jeff as saying, Taubman did not want to make that deal. And basically the idea that I got from what Ben was saying, and I'm sure he talked to, you got the very impression that he talked to the reporter, which I, I know which reporter is the one we're talking about. And, and as do I, right. And, and, and I think a lot of Astros fans know which reporter that is. So you got the impression that he talked to that particular reporter, female reporter, and she was the one that said, this is what he told her. So if that's what he told her, there's no reason not to believe the guy. If he's getting, you know, therapy, if he, you know, didn't want the Osuna trade to happen. And that's verified by Jeff himself um, and all of those things. I, I just, it's, it's fascinating. And it, it tells you kind of, Stephen, that th there's always more to the story. There's a lot more going on than potentially we know about. And not everything's is is potentially as it seems. No, it absolutely is not, Robert. And and look, I you hope that Brandon Taubman is getting help, whether it's, you know, for the drinking problem, if that's what he had, and or the other psychological issues. You know, people make mistakes, and it's it's how you handle the mistakes after you make them that can as often define you as the mistakes themselves. And that's why I just feel like Jeff Luno has had numerous chances to make this right. And I have yet to see on any of this, I mean, I, you know, the, the comments you just said about the podcast, notwithstanding, I have yet to see that he really has that much remorse for coming out and saying, or, or trying to at least repair what he has done. So that really is the difference to me is not only, you know, the mistakes you make can be very serious and very grave, but we all make mistakes. It's how we handle them afterwards that I think really defines whether you move forward or not. I don't know if we're getting anything out of it, but Jeff Luno is the next guest on the podcast. He's on the next episode. I, I would really ask everybody to listen to it. And the last 
little bit of a revelation, I thought, was this part. Listen to this part of the podcast because I found this part very, very fascinating, Stephen. Rob Arthur is a data scientist and journalist. He's written for all sorts of publications, including Nate Silver's 538. But his first job after completing his Ph.D. in evolutionary genetics was for Baseball Prospectus, the sports stats bible. The Astros often cracked their opponents' signs quickly. Their trash can bangs, either through their presence or their absence, communicated the correct signals about 90% of the time. When the scheme was on and working properly, it boosted their hitter's collective batting average by 7 points and their slugging percentage by 25 points. You know, it's, it's not huge. It was actually smaller than I was expecting. It's not like turning you from, uh, you know, league average into Mike Trout. It's not like turning you from just a, a scrub into an all-star. Nothing like that. It's just like a small boost, enough to turn someone who's already decent into someone who's solid, for example. What was more surprising to Arthur was what happened on the 10% of pitches that were signaled wrong when the trash can banged before a fastball or didn't before an off-speed pitch. In those cases, the Astros' hitters had almost no chance. Like when Evan Gaddis thought he'd get a fastball from Danny Farquhar, but got a changeup instead. Their batting average plunged by 45 points, and their slugging percentage by 93. And that is actually equivalent to turning you know, an average hitter into one of the worst hitters in the league. The one out of 10 pitches on which the Astros got the sign wrong were so damaging, in fact, that they resulted in Arthur's most surprising finding of all. You end up getting really close to, essentially, it, it all washed out in the end, and they ended up being no better than they would have been if they had never come up with this elaborate signaling scheme. The average number of runs that the Astros produced with the signal and without the signal were essentially identical. Given how optimized Jeff Luno's front office was to not just find every edge, but test its effectiveness, the idea that the Astros executives would have allowed the banging scheme to persist if it actually provided net zero help doesn't add up. They would have been the first to pick up on that phenomenon, which suggests two possibilities. One, the scheme had other components. Or two, the front office, at least the high-level, analytically advanced parts of it, truly didn't know about it. How about that, Stephen? Yeah, so can we just stop the the rhetoric of the how much more the trash-banging helped the Astros win the World Series or did this or did that? I, I mean, as primitive as the thing was, I, I just, you know, when I first heard about that round, I'm like, with with all the analytics and, and the, the, the things they have available to them and some of the other ways that they were doing the cheating scandal, you're relying on a primitive type of thing like trash can banging. You really think that's going to help? And it's, yeah, that's really fascinating. And I'll tell you what, as you said earlier, there's always more to the story. I and mean, we're going to have stuff like this coming out probably for years to come about this whole thing. But yeah, that, that's pretty fascinating how they they dug pretty deep to find all that. So and that's that's pretty amazing of itself. Yeah, and one of the guys, and, and it's worth listening to, I don't want to give too much away because I, I really feel like go out there and listen to it if you're an Astros fan, but they talked to Tony Adams, who's an Astros fan that actually went through game by game that entire year, and he figured out you know when the trash can banging was and, and how much it helped, and 
you know, all of these things. And then you add it into this other guy that you heard there who he was talking to, the baseball prospectus guy, a numbers guy. The one thing that Ben points out in that podcast that is worth mentioning is the fact that, you know, what, what if there was some other way for the Astros to relay the signals that wasn't the trash can banging we don't know about? You know, that's where, you know, discussion about the buzzer or whatever. But if there was another way that was less obvious than the trash can banging, to me, Stephen, it doesn't make any sense because why wouldn't you use that? The trash can bang feels like such an obvious thing that everybody can hear and pick up on and like everybody has done. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought, too, when I first heard about it. It's like, I mean, you, you're going to be seeing somebody banging a trash can. Somebody's going to see you do that, right? Especially if they're watching it multiple times during a game. So, yeah, that's why I'm just saying if if there were other things at play here, like the buzzers, as you said, don't you think, you know, they would have done that sort of thing? But everyone is, well, not everyone, but there are still people who are convinced that Jose Altuve was wearing a buzzer, and that was the reason they didn't want him to rip off his jersey when he hit the home run in the postseason last year. So, I don't know. It, it, it just, there'll, there'll probably be more books written about it by former players once they're out of the game or other things that come to light that we just don't know about yet. The other factor that Ben brought up that you can't factor in is, you know, when you did the trash can banging and it did work, the critical situations, uh, clutch situations, was it actually a a big help in those situations more than other ones and stuff like that? Um, Again, I, I, I don't think it would have helped during the playoffs, but obviously you know, as I've said before, if it gets you home field advantage in the regular season in the American League, which mattered against the Yankees, then that does matter. You know, and it and and those type of things do help you out. I mean, I, I there's you can't tell me that team was not going to win a ton of games and wasn't extremely talented and and did a lot of that stuff with just their own skill and things like that. But you know, I mean, I, I'm not going to be somebody that sits here and says hey, you know, it doesn't matter and everybody's cheating because I don't want I don't want that to be the message here that you can cheat, but it's just the vociferousness and the doggedness of everybody to say it's only the Astros. They are the most evil organization that there is in all of sports because they did this. And then we're going to discount the fact that we know that the Red Sox and the Yankees have cheated and that there's been accusations of a number of teams cheating. And again, it comes down to this whole idea, Stephen, that, you know, if you cheat and you're cheating better than everybody else, does that make you a worse person? It's like, you know, okay, are you um, are, are you a worse person because you stole $150,000 than the guy that stole $10,000 at the bank? I, I don't know. You, you're still a robber, right? It's the same thing. Absolutely. And I buy into that 100%. And I'm sorry, you know, I'm the biggest Astros fan that you're going to find, but I'm not going to sit here and defend the Astros for what they did. But at the same time, in every industry, I don't care if it's sports, business, whatever, crossing the line, cheating, being unethical, you know, whatever words you want to put to it, it goes on. And it's not just one villain. It's numerous ones. You know, the question always comes to, you know, who's going to get caught first, second, third, or who's never going to get caught? You know, if you're that good enough to hide it 
and you don't get caught, I don't think that makes you a better person at all. It just means you didn't get caught. But it, cheating is going on in all of sports, professional sports, college sports, high school sports. I mean, I, I cover youth sports for a living and there's cheating that goes on there. And these are, you know, 10, 12, 14, 16 year old kids playing ball. And you have parents and coaches that always trying to step over the line. So it is like this everywhere. And it's unfortunate that the Astros are looked at and vilified as maybe more the more evil team than anybody else. I'm sorry. I just don't bite into that. I, I don't like what they did. And they deserve all the criticism they get for what they did. But they absolutely are not the only ones who should be, you know, who should be criticized for it. And Stephen, after watching what's gone over the last few months, I wish the lesson that the rest of the sports world would have taken away from the Astros is that, hey, cheating should not be acceptable no matter what. Let's worry about getting cheating, the idea of cheating out of sports instead of let's see who we can vilify for cheating because we know it's been everywhere. Whitey Ford, who just died uh, like within the last month, Whitey Ford, Hall of Fame pitcher, all-time great, a zillion World Series championships. You know, you can go look at his resume. He's a upper-tier legend. The guy has admitted he's cheated. He said, I would cheat to win every single... He's basically said, I would cheat to win. And this is... This goes back... This is like a guy that's been in the 50s and 60s. It's, it's throughout baseball, whether you're scuffing balls, where you're putting spit on baseballs, whether you're corking bats whether you're using steroids or using amphetamines like they did back in the 70s and 80s, whatever you're using to get an advantage, then, you know, that's part of the deal. Now it's, you know, these prescription drugs that some guys use. Now you could say some of these things are not specifically in the rule book, but like I've always said, it doesn't always matter if it's in the rule book. If it's in like a federal law, or a state law, you shouldn't have to put it in the law of a sports book, you know? Well, that's absolutely right. If you're violating the law, you should be serving time or, or doing probation or, you know, whatever the punishment is under the law itself. But I think it just it emphasizes the point I just made, Robert, is that it, it, there, so many people do it. And, you know, it, it's up to the leagues and the teams to put their foot down and stop it. And, and if they don't, you know, then it's it's obviously going to continue. And I just don't see how we can pick and choose who's the worst villain or who are the teams or the players. Well, yeah, but there were some extenuating circumstances and it didn't really help them that much anyway. You know, you just, you, you can't cherry pick that kind of thing, in my opinion. Yeah, it's amazing how the Red Sox just kind of dismissed the fact that Manny Ramirez had two steroids violations this was a guy that helped them win a couple of World Series. Uh, you had other players on the Red Sox that are, are are in deep suspicion. You have Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit, who apparently Red Sox and Yankees fans just think, oh, well, they must have only cheated when they were with the Astros. There's no way they could have cheated when they were with us, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, go. Yeah, good luck with that. Anyway, tons of stuff in this show. A big one. Uh, hope you enjoy. We went a little bit extended, a little longer than normal. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, before we close things out, as always, let us know what you think. Messages through Twitter, Facebook, email info at HoustonSportsTalk.net. That's our email address. It's in the show description every single week. As always, stay healthy and safe, everybody. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. 
Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.